0: Welcome to the Age of Victoria Podcast. I'm your host Chris Fernandez Packham. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's show, take a minute to leave a review on iTunes and subscribe or get in touch with me using email at Age of Victoria Podcast at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. On with the show.
1: Now, drumroll please, because it's time to get to Victoria herself. I want to emphasise now that it was originally unlikely that the young girl, Victoria, would go on to be Queen. The Hanoverian and British King
0: George III had four legitimate male children. His oldest son, George, would be the Prince Regent, and later King George IV. He would be despised as few other English monarchs had been. He had married his Catholic mistress in a secret ceremony before eventually marrying the Protestant Princess Charlotte. Before eventually marrying the Protestant Princess Caroline, the couple would come to hate each other with a passion
1: almost unequalled in royal history. The prince, was loathed by a huge number of his subjects. Princess
0: Caroline was given more sympathy, including by Jane Austen. If you have listened to my previous episodes on the Mount Tambora eruption and the subsequent climate disasters they unleashed, as well as the episode on the Peterloo massacre in 1819, you will know that he took the Marie Antoinette line of letting them all eat cake. He had compounded this with his immense spending and love of fashion. Whilst the people starved in poverty, he seems to have approved of the repressive measures of his Prime Minister, Lord Liverpool. His carriage was stoned on one occasion, so it wasn't just his wife who loathed him. The fickle British public turned on her. When the regent became king, and he barred her from the coronation. They did manage to have a daughter during the marriage, Princess Charlotte. She was the legitimate heir to the throne, since the legions of illegitimate children of the various Hanoverian dukes
1: were excluded. When she married Prince Leopold of Coburg, the nation rejoiced. Princess Charlotte was being fetished into the perfect future monarch an antidote to her hated father, George IV. He and Charlotte
0: had a difficult relationship, and there were times when he treated her with appalling viciousness. One area where he did pay her attention
1: was when it came to using her to wring money out of the public purse to keep her, and therefore him, in the style the Hanoverians had become accustomed to. Lord Liverpool
0: eventually agreed to an allowance of £50,000 10000 for the princess's maids and an
1: additional £60,000 for furniture. This was the kind of figure that was undreamed of by almost the entire population and could have easily paid for
0: and outfitted a full, Royal Navy ship of the line. Sort of like if the United States during a budget crisis decided to spend the cost of an aircraft carrier on topping up a president's four year wages. Since this was at the height of the year without summer and the massive famines it was incredibly resented. Her wedding dress cost an additional £10,000. Still Unlike her father at his wedding, she and the groom were deeply in love. Popular adulation of the couple reached fever pitch. Prince Leopold was unlike the regent. He didn't have rages and spend recklessly or turn into a belligerent drunk. You might want to remember Leopold, the man who was almost king, because he will pop up in this podcast more than once as Victoria's Uncle Leopold. I'd like to point out that if you only know, know about the Prince Regent from the old Blackadder show, Series 3, when he was played as a lovable idiot by the brilliant Hugh Laurie, then this might be shocking. Blackadder went easy on him. And that's because TV can't make a main character too unlikable. Otherwise, you won't support them. Usually, the way they do it is by making a nasty person a bit stupid, a little bit out of touch, and more self-centred than nasty. That works for TV, but it hides the real character of the historical person. The people of Britain in 1819
1: would probably have absolutely killed to have the Black aversion. The real Prince Regent was vain, arrogant, totally selfish, petty, spiteful, clever, vindictive, and ultra-conservative. He was also obscenely impatient for his father the King to die
0: so that he could have the throne. Astonishingly, the Duke of Wellington loathed him and considered him worse than Louis XVIII when he did eventually become king he weighed 245 pounds was addicted to opium and had a 51-inch waist he was a huge jane austen fan purchasing sense and sensibility before it was released and offering her suggestions for improvement but she hated his guts plus telling jane austen how to write probably the ultimate piece of mansplaining his wife said He was a bad king but would have made a great hairdresser. He certainly had an eye for art and he was at least responsible for a large part of the exquisite restoration and redesign of Windsor Castle. He had the overall gothic design rolled out to the whole building including increasing the height of the grand tower, more striking battlements, new towers, new apartments, new grand corridors and a riot of incredible styles inside the rooms. Work wasn't finished till after his death, but the modern skyline of Windsor Castle is very
1: much down to George IV. Typically of him, it cost an absolute fortune, while the poor continued to starve and
0: suffer. As I said in the previous main episode on Peterloo, Even after the massacre, he managed to make himself immensely unpopular
1: and was the subject of vitriolic attacks in the press and from reformers. Princess Charlotte soon fell pregnant and the nation was enraptured. She was
0: determined to please her serious husband and live up to his ideals. That included the always popular habit Promptly settling bills rather than running up debts. The increasingly fat and unhealthy Prince
1: Regent would surely not live a long life, and now the heir to the throne on the verge having an heir. Leopold shrewdly used the opportunity to press his sister Victorie
0: on one of the Prince Regent's brothers, the Duke of Kent. The future
1: seemed rosy. Disaster struck during the pregnancy. Princess Charlotte was weak and listless. The royal doctors argued and Sir Robert Croft took over sole
0: treatment of the patient. He decided that what was needed was to reduce the weight of the baby and the mother so a rigorous court of diet and bleeding was required. In November a long labour stretched 36 hours a nearly starved Charlotte lost all her energy by the end the doctors panicked they came to the view forceps would be needed but the lack of sterility meant these often killed even though no one quite understood why no doctor wanted to be blamed for killing the only legitimate heir to the throne almost inevitably the poor child was stillborn. Only after the birth did the doctors decide to do something. They tried to remove the placenta with their bare hands and gave the grieving Leopold a powerful sedative. He would not wake up in time to see his wife's agonising death. Charlotte was left alone after the birth in an act of breathtaking complacency. She later woke in incredible pain and died bleeding badly. The nation was plunged into grief and despair. Lord Byron would include lines in his great poem, Child Harold, about the event. That sounds like medical incompetence, and we will often see during the podcast that Royal Medical Care was unusually bad because the doctors were appointed for the wrong reasons and were too busy sucking up to their patient to do the job properly. Still, we haven't been into the history and life story of these doctors. Plus, their tools and medical knowledge lack some of the most important parts of modern medicine, like germ theory. Picture some men, dressed a little like Mr. Darcy in a Jane Austen adaptation, with nothing more than brandy, needle and thread, forceps, scalpels and clamps and perhaps a tincture of poppy juice that's not much to work with for a modern doctor during a difficult labour let alone with Regency era medical knowledge they had no ultrasounds or even a basic stethoscope so Richard Croft never recovered
1: from the experience at another difficult birth he broke down, took out a pistol and blew his brains out the nobility
0: were equally upset except for the prince regent's surviving brothers
1: the race to be the first to produce a legitimate heir to the throne was on Okay, let's break that down a bit the prince regent couldn't produce a legitimate heir unless he could divorce his hated wife who he loathed and remarry he would be king he outlived his father but the throne would have to go to a legitimate brother historian Kate Williams notes in her excellent book *Becoming Queen quote, the king was wailing in madness at Windsor and the prince regent was
0: estranged from his wife unless the prince or one of his siblings had a
1: child the Hanoverian line would be at an end It has been calculated that George III had an astonishing 56 grandchildren, but did not have one legitimate
0: heir. The vision of Charlotte had sustained the people through the direst years of the regency. Without her, all hope seemed gone.
1: The nation was horrified. The Prince Regent's daughters were all too old to have children. I'm afraid this means. We need to
0: pause and have a look now. The complex family tree of the Hanoverians.
1: At the top we have George III, the Mad King. I emphasise mad because the spectre of his madness
0: would haunt the family and be used as a weapon against Victoria. His legitimate sons were the Prince Regent, George Augustus
1: Frederick, born 1762, and later George IV, Prince Frederick, Duke of York, who would die before his father, William, born 1765, and later King William IV, Edward, Duke of Kent, born
0: 1767, and Victoria's father, Ernest Augustus, Duke of Cumberland, born 1771, Augustus Frederick, Duke of Sussex, born 1773 and Adolphus, Duke of Cambridge, born 1774. Since the Royal Marriages Act, 1772, said the sons could only marry with royal approval, which would never be given for marriage to a mistress, they were all
1: unmarried and not producing legitimate heirs. Succession to the throne was by primogeniture. The throne passed
0: to the sons, in order of birth, then passed the daughters in order, going down the line. So a king with two sons means that the eldest son gets the throne. But if he dies childless, it would then go to his brother. If, however, the son who
1: inherited the throne had a daughter, she would in turn inherit the throne. But, if he then had a younger brother, it would skip down to him. For us then, remember, Prince Regent was first in line for the throne, then Frederick, then William, then Edward. You can see how dramatically an heir
0: would change things for the individuals in a family. The Duke of York was estranged from his wife. He would be heir presumptive for a while when the Prince Regent became George IV, but he died too soon to inherit the throne. He is mostly remembered for the nursery rhyme "The Grand Old Duke of York." which is totally unfair, since he did in large part reform the army, and much of the Napoleonic British army was the result of his activities. Still, history can be like that, and at least everyone will remember him. The Duke of Sussex was in an illegal marriage, so ruled himself out, and that left
1: the Dukes and Clarence. Cambridge and Kent as possibly able to produce a legitimate heir. This wasn't a trivial thing. The monarchy was the central foundation. The
0: monarchy was the central foundation of the constitution, albeit that most functional power rested with parliament. A vacant
1: throne could lead to anything from minor squabbling to all-out European war as the various claimants appeared out of the
0: woodwork. The brothers, or at least some of the brothers, were hated almost as much as the Prince Regent. The thought of the brutal earnest Duke of Cumberland becoming king seemed terrifying and he was surrounded with rumours of murder and incest. Of all of them, the Duke of Kent was regarded as probably the best. All of the brothers had illegitimate children so surely if they married
1: at least one would produce an heir. Parliament was adamant get on with it. As soon as Charlotte died the brothers were pressed
0: to get married. First off when the starting gun fired was the Duke of Cambridge who proposed to Augusta Princess of hesse cassel in ten days. William, Duke of Clarence aged 52, quickly followed with a marriage to Princess Amelia of Saxe-Meiningen despite him being in love with another woman who he had got involved with after jilting his long-term mistress and another suitor. Princess Amelia was only 25. Still, she was intelligent, kind and willing to be a stepmother to the Duke's 10 illegitimate children. Her patience must have been nearly saintly in 1814 Ernest the Duke of Cumberland had already married Frederica of mecklenburg Strelitz, but the pair were intensely disliked dark rumours surrounded them concerning murder and their daughter was stillborn in 1817 finally Prince Edward Duke of Kent entered the race he had been eating breakfast with his long-term mistress Theresa, Bernadine Monjonette, when they learned from the paper of the prospect of all of the brothers racing to marry, with the Duke of Kent's name being linked to some of Leopold's sisters. The Duke of Kent naturally reassured his lover of 28 years that he would never ever leave her. Nice try there, but we all know how that's going to turn out when the throne of the United Kingdom is up for grabs. It was vital for the Dukes, all of whom had been living in massive debt and were expecting the public to bail them out eventually. Even the rockiest rock of the establishment, bastion of the old order par excellence and supporter of Louis XVIII, the Duke of Wellington, considered them, quote, the damnedest millstones around the necks of any government that might be imagined, end quote. Still, someone had to be put on the throne. If not one of the dukes with a child, then to whom could the nation turn? A foreign duke? An English one? A descendant of the House of Stuart? One of the Habsburgs? All of these prospects were fraught with immense difficulties. Could England be wrecked by a war of English succession, as Spain had been? Were England, Scotland... Ireland and Wales really ready to play the game of thrones? Was England to become a battleground for Austria, Prussia and Spain with rival claimants? Would thousands die, fortunes be drained and fields burnt by rival claimants and continental mercenaries and adventurers? Could the United Kingdom splinter like Italy? The country was in dire straits as you know from the Mount Tambora and Peterloo episodes I did, to add a war of succession would have been catastrophic. To ensure stability, the Duke of Kent was adamant he was prepared to make the supreme sacrifice of becoming king, or at least father of the heir. He was doing it for his country, trusting only that they would give him a generous allowance and pay off his small debts, as he called them which is frankly stretching the term small. He had a genuinely mixed military record, ranging from being AWOL to being brave enough to be mentioned in dispatches and receiving the thanks of Parliament for his West Indies campaign. And he did excellent military and civil engineering in Nova Scotia. But he was trained as a harsh disciplinarian, perhaps against his natural character, This led to him being sent to Gibraltar to restore order to the forces there, only to tip them into outright mutiny with his brutality. In fairness, things were already especially bad there, so perhaps it was unavoidable. His mistress stood by him through all this, making the abandonment of her particularly harsh. Victoria's father did have good
1: qualities. He was brave. Self-disciplined, and according to the Duke of Wellington, he was an excellent public speaker. He
0: was six foot tall, tough, well-muscled, and didn't leave a wild life of drinking and parties like his brothers. He was a bit of a romantic. He had smuggled love letters from Princess Charlotte to Leopold, and seems to have been her favourite uncle. He was a patron of 53 charities. He was a liberal as understood in the early 19th century, intelligent and interested in good government, unlike his brothers. He supported popular education, Catholic emancipation, and the abolition of slavery. Princess Victorie had rebuffed him once before Charlotte died, when he was secretly hunting for wives behind his mistress's back to get himself out of debt. The death of Princess Charlotte changed things The duke was penniless, but he was still a duke and in line for the throne. He was in robust good health and confident he would outlive his dissolute brothers. Leopold was determined his sister would marry the duke. Intense negotiations followed and Victory finally agreed once her terms were met. It was a long shot, as it was with all the brothers, but who knew? Maybe she would be Queen of the United Kingdom, or at least the Queen Mother. Victory was a fine match. She got points straight away for not being French, or having any Napoleonic attachments. She was from Saxe-Coburg-Salfeld, that had suffered from Napoleon's snatch of German territory. But she was Protestant, known to be fertile,
1: and had a pleasant personality combined with a cheery nature rosy cheeks brown hair and a plump short figure they soon found themselves against the odds actually in
0: love in later life queen victoria read her mother's notebooks after the duchess had died and was amazed by quote, "how very very much she and my beloved father loved each other"
1: such Love and affection, I hardly knew it was to that extent. End quote. As a digression,
0: the sad thing about quoting from Victoria's diaries is it can't show you those wonderful overemphasises that she does in her texts with underlining and italics that show you that she was probably writing just how she would have spoken. Anyway, whilst Parliament was pleased with marriages, He was not happy with paying large allowances. The Prince Regent redoubled his efforts to get a divorce from his hated wife. On the 29th of May, in 1818, the Duke and Duchess of Kent married in Coburg in Germany, then returned to England. The Prince Regent had agreed to have the wedding solemnised at Kew by the Archbishop of Canterbury and then they went back to Germany to save money escape the duke's growing debts and make the duchess a little happier. This might surprise you, but the couple actually did seem to have a happy marriage. The duke was patient with his wife's poor English, he gave her affection and she seemed to enjoy having a man to rely on. He enjoyed her good looks, her connection to Leopold and even congratulated himself on having treated his mistress so well during the break-up. Although I don't think she entirely agreed. The Duke was happy to go to Germany. And now we introduce some really key
1: players in Victoria's early life. Princess Victoria had a daughter from her previous marriage named Fedora, who would
0: be Victoria's half-sister. And the Duke of Kent brought to the family ensemble a 32-year-old Irishman called Sir John Conroy. If you have even a passing knowledge of Victoria's childhood and life, you will know what an immense impact he would have on her. News came in November 1818 that the Duke of Clarence's child died after a premature birth. The Duke of Kent knew that they had to get back to England now, put their expected child into the limelight. Sir John Conroy was an efficient organiser
1: and sorted out the trip so that in March 1819, despite being eight months pregnant, the Duchess of Kent, Princess Victorie, travelled to England on the royal yacht,
0: grudgingly sent by the Prince Regent. After a short six-hour labour,
1: the Duchess of Kent gave birth to a healthy baby girl.
0: was witnessed by the Duke of Wellington the Archbishop of Canterbury
1: the Bishop of London the future Prime Minister George Canning the Duke of Sussex and the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the Duke of
0: Kent himself. This might seem unpleasant to us and an invasion of privacy and to modern sensibilities it certainly is but this was not unusual for high society births in the early 19th century, and it was important because it meant no one would be able to question the child's legitimacy or the circumstances of Victoria's birth at quarter past four on the 24th of May 1819 at Kensington Palace. A series of unlikely events
1: and unlikely deaths would bring her from fifth in line to the throne to Queen. The family and relatives were overjoyed. The baby was described as quote, "a pretty little princess, as plump as a partridge." End quote. The Duchess of
0: Kent was delighted, she even decided to breastfeed the baby. This really wasn’t common for noble women at the time, and probably caused a few raised eyebrows. It also had the critical effect of delaying any further pregnancies. Ironically, very nearby, in Saxe-Coburg, the sister-in-law of Leopold and the Duchess of Kent gave birth to a boy called Francis Charles Augustus Albert Emmanuel, better now known to history as Prince Albert, delivered by the same obstetrician,
1: Frau Charlotte Seeberg. He was Victoria's first cousin. The Duke of Kent was thrilled about having a healthy daughter
0: and was happy to boast about it. The Prince Regent was less than thrilled about hearing the news. Prince Regent might be fat, hated, ill and often heavily dosed with laudanum but he could still manage to be spiteful. He declared the child would only get a small christening, no dress uniforms or public celebrations. This was a big slap in the face for the duke of kent in an age when symbolism really really mattered forcing a low-key minor ceremony denied the kents and the child the proper level of ceremony that was due to their social rank much to the prince regent's irritation Tsar alexander of russia offered to sponsor the child and even the prince regent couldn't outright reject the powerful Tsar. The Tsar's intervention made naming difficult. Originally, the little girl was going to be called Victorie
1: Georgiana Alexandrina Charlotte Augusta. Now, at this point, you are probably thinking, hang on, you are supposed to be telling us about Victoria, the English Queen.
0: Are you sure you've got the right baby? She sounds like a German aristocrat with connections to Russia. And I hear you metaphorical listener. But bear with me here. We really have got the right baby. That or Barry Allen has been messing with the timelines again. Anyway, the night before the christening, the Prince Regent decided he wasn't happy with the name. He couldn't put his feminised name ahead of the Tsar's name. Only the actual king could do that without giving offence. But being the Prince Regent and frankly a bit of a dick, he wasn't going to go after the Tsar's name either. So he did what he did best. He made it all about him, and told everyone he was going to choose the names. Charlotte, as a name, was out for a start. Which at least you can understand, due to the grief of losing his daughter. But still, and it's not that he actually made up his mind quickly. At three o'clock, on the 24th of June 1819, the actual heir in line to the English throne and all the guests, including the Archbishop of Canterbury, were in the Capola room at the christening in Kensington Palace, waiting on the name. I like to think of the Archbishop there, in his absolute finery, dropping hints about how this would be a lot easier the baby had an actual name for this event. He probably said he would even note spelling. The Prince Regent decided she was going to be called Alexandrina. The Duke of Kent asked if she could have a second name as, you know, that was the custom and they did give you a really long list. Remember? How about Elizabeth? The Duke suggested. That's got pedigree. The Prince Regent said no. Reducing the Duchess of Kent to tears. And then he virtually snapped and said, quote, Give her the mother's name also then, but it cannot precede that of the Emperor. End quote. So if any of you are still baffled by why the whole country
1: hated the guy, it's stuff like this. Importantly, though, the little girl and possible heir to the throne had a name
0: Alexandrina, future Queen alexandrina of england wait what okay well the full name was alexandrina victoria according to historian kate williams at a lecture she gave in winchester the name victoria was chosen as the mother's name victorie was french and so to anglicize it and turn it
1: into latin it had to be turned into victoria which is the first time the name is ever used in England. Seriously,
0: Queen V was always going to be a trendsetter. Not that anyone called her
1: Queen yet, or V, or even Victoria. When she was a baby, her mother referred to her as Vicklechin, mostly
0: though she was called by her nickname, Drina, short for Alexandrina.
1: When she became Queen, she decided to adopt Victoria as her regnal name, and drop the Alexandrina.
0: Like everything else in her childhood, things had been rough and unfair to
1: the little girl. We will find out more next time. Before we go, I've just got some scheduling announcements. As you know, it is
0: December, and Christmas is a big thing for the family and I, so I will be releasing some kind of short episode just before Christmas to celebrate. I've got an idea or two up my sleeve. There will not be a release of a main narrative show again until February. I simply won't have time over Christmas to sort it out. So the next main show will be on the 1st of February, not the 1st of January. I'll try to give you a nice mini-sode in January to tide you over. If I can grab time, I'll also try to start remastering the first three episodes of the show. Right. I'll get on with the Christmas show, wrapping presents and doing my new role at work, which is incredibly challenging. One day I might do a podcast series on it or write a book for posterity. Okay, thanks for listening today. I'm now going to get busy on the next show. Don't forget to take a minute to subscribe or leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with me via email at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Catch me on Twitter at Age of Victoria or via Facebook if you've got any questions or if you just want to chat. Goodbye, and I bid you adieu until next time.